This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. On May 25th of 2020, police officer Derek Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, killing him. On Tuesday, a jury convicted Chauvin of all charges. Chauvin's conviction comes at a time when national attention is once again being paid to police brutality. Last Sunday, a police officer in Minnesota shot and killed 20-year-old Duante Wright after reportedly confusing a taser and a gun. Last week, Chicago released body cam footage of a police officer shooting 13-year-old Adam Toledo, who appeared to have dropped his weapon and raised his hands. A video from December of two police officers pointing guns, pepper spraying, and pushing a black army officer to the ground during a traffic stop also circulated this month. These news stories also come at a time when several high-profile mass shootings have devastated the country. Both mass shootings and police brutality have led to outcries for change, but they've also left many exhausted and cynical about whether things can and will ever depart from how they are right now. In many ways, too, they've left us further divided. In previous shows, we've talked about white evangelical attitudes towards police and the changing religious beliefs of many African-American protesters leading the Black Lives Matter movement. We wanted to talk about the ways these horrific events have brought us together and the ways in which they've only further driven us apart. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm Editorial Director at Christianity Today. All right, Ted, we are recording this episode just a couple minutes after we heard the verdict for the Derek Chauvin case. So I actually don't know what your reaction is, and we're going to about to have to do a gut check in real time. Tell us how you're processing all of this. I think like many people, my reaction is relief. You know, I have not been following this super closely to go minute by minute through the trial. I've I've been getting, you know, kind of broader updates. Uh, And it did not seem to me like the defense had put up much of a, of a case, except to argue that George Floyd was a criminal, basically. Just it seemed seemed like a pretty weak defense. And so I think if it had gone not guilty, it would have been pretty devastating nationally and would have led to a, a lot of lost faith. You know, just looking at my Twitter feed in real time here, it's not celebratory, but there's a great kind of exhale here on a lot of people's. Although, actually, a number of people are reporting on my Twitter feed at the moment that there are celebrations going around. So, you know, know, here's one tweet that says, it sounds like the day the election results were were called out there in in New York City. So this was not what we were going to talk about today, originally on this podcast, you know, my mind is swirling a little bit with some of the questions that we were going to raise about mass shootings, which is what we were going to talk about earlier. And so, and especially the role that media plays in mass shootings. I do still have a lot of questions about as a media outlet at Christianity Today, thinking through how we talk about policing uh, in CT, thinking about how we talk about police violence and are, you know, making sure that we want to accurately Represent, you know how how common how common this is 
the racial disparities in police violence, the the commonness of police violence, all the all those things are kind of still swirling in my head, and I don't necessarily have those statistics at my fingertips. So a lot of a lot of wondering some of that stuff right now. Morgan, how about you? What's your gut check on this? Also have a lot of different feelings that are going on. When I was, I don't know, putting together the introduction, it just kind of reminded me of all the heaviness that this comes in the midst of and all the just angst that I feel like I've been, I don't know if processing the right is the right word, but kind of drowning in in many ways for the past couple of weeks. It just feels felt like there's an onslaught of not only bad news, but really dark news. Yeah. It feels like it has like a, a different level of just um, maliciousness and terribleness to sit with. There's not a lot of recourse a lot of times for the anger that I feel when I hear about these particular things. I think in many of the mass shootings, there's a sense that whoever, in many instances, the perpetrator ends up ending their own lives. Many instances with these police officer or these acts of police misconduct, there's a sense that the police will somehow figure out a way to worm their way out of whatever sense of accountability that we believe would be, you know, commiserate with what they have done. And yet at the same time, it doesn't seem, it seems very elusive. So I do feel a sense of relief that in this instance, it, it appears that something has been done. I I do think though that I, I will admit to a certain layer of cynicism and sense of this feels still like the bare minimum. Like I want to be grateful because this is not even something that we've seen in most instances, but it's hard not to feel like there should also be more that can be done. And when it comes in the midst of a, you know, again, of other instances of policeman conduct, it feels worrying if we're getting closer to things actually changing on the other level. Anyway, who is going to talk to us about all of these complicated events today, Ted? Our guest is Bob Thompson. He's assistant professor of sociology at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. He's done a lot of recent postdoc work with Elaine Eklund on the religious beliefs and attitudes of scientists. You should read their article that is on the Christianity Day website, Why Do Fewer Christian Women Work in Science? Very good article. Actually, his main focus is on the interplay of criminology, inequality, and religion, and has done a lot of work on how attitudes are shaped on things like policing and how religion plays into that. If you're going to Google him, which I recommend that you do, it's Robert A. Thompson with no P in Thompson. We are really grateful that he was able to come on quick to listen. We are we are literally taping this you know, seconds after the verdict was read. So Bob, thank you for coming to quick to listen. Thanks for having me. Yes, what a time. What a time to be here. All right, Bob. Well, let's just start with your reaction. I'd love to hear how you're making sense of it, both at a personal level, but also in light of some of the research and work you've done on this topic. Uh, I, I tweeted one word. Uh, wow. I think it's really hard to overstate just how symbolically important this verdict is. I probably don't have to remind you that we're talking about an incident that sparked months of worldwide protests. 
Black Lives Matter really did start to capture national attention after the deaths of Eric Garner in New York City and Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. But it really was after the death of George Floyd that BLM really started to gather a lot of visibility and support. I mean, we also saw the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor last spring, and that did make a lot of people angry across racial lines. But there was something about seeing that video of Derek Chauvin holding his knee on George Floyd's neck that really brought people out onto the streets in the middle of a pandemic. Well, I think what's symbolically important here is that this is the kind of incident that really is at the heart of a lot of anger, first and foremost, in the Black community and now increasingly in other communities as well. And there was an interview of a young man doing a painting outside of the courthouse, and he, he mentioned how numb he felt. We've been here before. We're always let down. And it just does seem like every year we hear about these stories where an African-American seems to be killed during an interaction with police officers for no other reason than they, they were black. I mean, you see people doing much worse things, people resisting arrest, people committing mass murder, and they're somehow they are subdued and taken into custody. But black men, mostly men, also women, also trans individuals, are disproportionately killed in, the, in these kinds of interactions. We know this from the data. And time after time, it does seem like black communities are just not getting justice. They're not getting that guilty verdict. These police officers, they're, they're deemed to have some acted reasonably, which, which is little consolation to the families of these victims. And of course, the fallout of this sort of a pattern of enforcement is a dramatic loss of trust. Morgan, you mentioned something, how you felt. You used the word cynicism. I think that's really interesting to use that word because there actually is a, a term in the academic literature called legal cynicism. And it describes that process where police come to be seen not as providers of peace and security in a community. They come to be seen as an occupying force because of these kinds of patterns of racialized enforcement. This verdict, for me, has really profound symbolic importance. I don't think it's going to be something that causes deep changes. I think it's more than anything else, kind of a sigh of relief. But we still have a long ways to go for racial justice in this country. This is a welcome change. We, we rarely see this kind of accountability of police officers. But again, we have a long way to go. You do a lot of quantitative research. So I just uh, was trying to get a, a little bit of numbers in the uh, time we had before the show. You know, here's an article in Nature pointing to an article in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that found that black men are two and a half times more likely than white men to be killed by police during their lifetime. Another study, this is a study in criminology and public policy. Both those peer-reviewed studies. Black people who were fatally shot by police were twice as likely as white people to be unarmed. As you said, well-established, but I would, I would note one of the reasons that data may, may be more difficult to come by is that is the law enforcement itself has some resistance in, in maintaining a good data set on some of these matters. Yes, that's absolutely right. And I think things are improving. Since about 2015, there have been initiatives by the Justice Department to start collecting better data on this. But I, I am really glad that you are asking about numbers because numbers, I think, as a quantitative, I might be biased as a quantitative scholar, but I think there is an impulse to look at closely at individual cases and conclude, like, for instance, there's no way we could know that these officers are motivated by race. And that does make some intuitive sense, right? I mean, even if an officer is personally racist, we may never know, right? They might just keep those thoughts to themselves. Or 
you know, they might be operating on implicit bias, you know, things like that. If you zoom out from these individual cases, the patterns do tell a very clear and compelling story. There's a recent study by Edwards, Lee, and Esposito that found that police violence is the leading cause of death for young black men in the United States. One of every 1,000 black men die this way. And it goes beyond this particular phenomena, right? This is sort of emblematic of a broader social pattern in the criminal justice system. So there's a terrific resource. It's called the Sentencing Project. They have a lot of great resources for understanding black-white disparities in criminal justice. They note, for example, that black youth account for about 16% of all children, but they account for 28% of juvenile arrests. So there's disproportionate referrals to the criminal justice system for children. Black drivers are pulled over for traffic stops or subjected to stop and frisk at vastly higher rates than white drivers. And while drug use does tend to be similar across racial groups, black drivers are three times more likely to be searched during a traffic stop and twice as likely to be threatened with violent force by police. African-Americans constitute about 12 to 14% of the population, but about 34% of the prison population, drastically overrepresented. If you combine African-Americans and Hispanics, they combine make up about half of the prison population. Somewhere between one in three and one in four black men will serve time at some point in their lifetime. And by age 23, half of all black men have been arrested at least once. When they're convicted, black defendants receive sentences that are on average 13% longer than other defendants. And that's even when you account for a criminal background. Black defendants are 38% more likely to be sentenced to death, even controlling for the severity of the homicide. We even see this disparity coming through with DNA exonerations. Most of the people being exonerated by new DNA evidence are black which means they're being wrongfully convicted at a vastly higher rate. It's up and down the criminal justice system. That's how we know, like, it's it's about race, even if we can't prove that one instance is about race. That's how we know that the larger pattern of these incidents is about race to some degree. Even when we can't say that this case is about race, it's the patterns that emerge that it's too much to be a coincidence. It has to be something about race. You know, one of the things I found in this Journal of Nature study that, that was particularly surprising was how much more likely fatal police shootings are to happen in smaller communities than in big cities. So the large cities account for only 30% of fatal police shootings. But but there's no doubt that when you look at other data, you're like, yep, that does definitely backstop the Chauvin case as being not a case of a bad apple necessarily, but of a systemic problem. Absolutely. It would be interesting to see some data on this, but I suspect it might have something to do with the level of resources a community police force has at its disposal, especially for training. It's not just that a police officer needs to be trained well at the at the front end, but they need continual training for de-escalation and handling intense situations and even situations in which maybe police aren't the best kinds of a professional to be there to address, and yet they are called to address situations in which mental illness is is certainly a factor. That's where resources are important. Funding for training is probably not sufficient for these smaller sort of maybe rural, small town police forces and sheriff's offices in comparison to larger cities where maybe you do have a police chief that is more aware of racial dynamics and racial injustices and more aggressive in trying to stem the tide of these kind of terrible stories. 
You have been teaching criminology and some of these related classes on crime, both at where you are right now, the University of Alabama in Huntsville, and then earlier at, at Baylor. I, I assume that a number of people taking criminology courses are interested in going into law enforcement. Where are you seeing some of the views that may, that may surprise you in students? Where do you see views changing incoming students as some of the stuff is being discussed in the last few years? In 2015, uh, as a graduate student teaching undergraduate students at Baylor, I had a sort of a mentality of how can this be happening? It's 2015. Why is this still happening? And now, you know, six years later, I think I've come to a place of thinking, of course, this is happening. Can it ever end? Starting to feel ever more skeptical that broad social changes can occur, but, you know, pressing forward nevertheless. The corresponding change that I've seen among students is sort of a passive interest in the topics several years ago of of knowing that there are issues, acknowledging that race is an issue in society and in crime specifically, and in law enforcement especially, to now being keyed in. You know, students are, are starting to really have a hyper interest in addressing these issues. What's interesting is that I have been talking with students for the past several years about things like the rise of gang violence in urban centers. We really try to dig down to the the core of what has caused it. And sometimes many of them are surprised, for instance, that in Los Angeles, the Watts Rebellion was a reaction to what was perceived as abusive police brutality in the communities. A similar kind of events that we still see persisting in the news to this day. Earlier when I was teaching that there was sort of a passive interest, the students were acknowledging that this is an issue and it's something that needs to be addressed. And now students are sort of keyed in because of what they're seeing every day, every year in the news media, these stories that sort of seem to be on repeat. I've had students come up to me after taking the class and saying, thank you for going through that because it did help me to understand what I was consuming in the news media. I was able to have better conversations with my parents or my friends in the dorm room. Students are really starting to have a new openness to understanding these social phenomena. So I'm glad that we're talking about student views with regards to what has changed. And I want to broaden the conversation a little bit. There were several things that I thought made this particular case relatively extraordinary. And one of them was the video that captured the entire incident. and. For someone who admittedly feels a little cynical, as I mentioned a couple minutes ago, there's a part of me that wonders if this case in some ways is just an anomaly. Um, And I'm wondering to the extent to which you see it like that or the extent to which you do see this as something has actually gone from just students' minds changing to attitudes about police changing, as represented by the juries, our ability for our legal codes to better hold police officers accountable? What else might be different in the climate as opposed to maybe five or 10 years ago? There is a sort of a changing tide, although I do agree with you that there is a part of me that feels like there's an uphill climb. And that's because this discussion has been become so politicized in our discourse. Even when the social problems are acknowledged to be a real thing, the, the response to those problems can sort of diverge. For example, this case has sort of exposed areas in which people from across the political spectrum 
have found the common ground. And I think that that was true when we saw the video. I think that people from across the political spectrum saw that video and, and acknowledged that something bad was happening, that this should not be happening, that, that something in this person's behavior should not be part of our protocols for dealing with these situations. Where we start to diverge, and this is something that is reinforced by the hyper-partisan media environment that we're living in, is our attribution of why that occurred. So it's easy to say on one hand that this is an individual who was poorly trained or was personally racist or just didn't know what he was doing. That what we need to do to fix that is to wear body cameras and weed out the bad apples. There's another impulse to say that this is part of a broader systemic issue, that policing per se has some racial bias baked into it, and that we're never going to be able to solve the issue of racial bias in policing until we solve the problem of racial bias in society. And that's a huge issue because now we're not just talking about discrimination and police profiling. We're talking about differential access to education, healthcare access. We're talking about discrimination in the workplace. We're talking about differences in incarceration and the stigmas experienced after incarceration and the inability to get work after incarceration. All of these are bound up together. So it is a really huge issue. Is there any evidence to suggest that this attention that's been paid to police brutality has actually altered the behavior of police officers themselves? I did see a study recently where cities in which a protest occurred last summer, in the summer 2020, where there was a reduction in police violence. So there might be some <laughs> short, I, I, I would guess that it, without any policy changes, it's a short-term sort of reaction. Hopefully what that does is it, it starts a conversation for policy reform down the line. But you also do see some policy changes occurring at the local level in some isolated communities where they are addressing the issue through changes in in police policy. But that's not a national thing yet. It's not even a state level thing yet. So again, the best we can do right now is wait to see what happens. Do things improve in, in the areas where those changes are being made? Because there's always a counter narrative. A lot of times I think that the hashtag defund the police gets sort of confused with abolish the police. There are certain stories where people will point to a city, Portland, Minneapolis, Minnesota, where there have been efforts to divert funding from police to other parts of the civil service network, and maybe doesn't seem like it's working yet. But also, it's also really early. So how are we going to really know if if that is an effect of diversion of funding. There, so much of data is slow, and so much of our public desire for change is fast, and there's a mismatch there, and it's going to be hard to navigate those waters. So I know you have looked a little bit about the differences in views of policing. It seems like that difference is very much based in kind of like the story that you think about, about police. Your personal experience of being with police, if you are more likely to experience profiling, you are going to have a negative view of police, right? And I am interested in the roles also that those narratives also play for police themselves. Where do you see narratives being shaped? And is the police enough of an island unto itself 
that they are creating the, the dominant narrative for for fellow police, or are they are they likely to be heavily influenced by kind of this you know kind of broader collective narrative? In many ways, I think police are sort of a microcosm of society. I mean, they're not disconnected from it; they're embedded within it. So the narratives that play out in broader society will also work their way into the rank and file of the police departments across the nation. The kind of context that they're in plays a big difference. Again, citing that study where locations where there was a protest, you saw less police minority violence occur in the aftermath of of the Black Lives Matter protest. And part of that has to do with where those protests are occurring. They're occurring mostly in sort of big to medium-sized cities, small cities sometimes, but most likely in the bigger cities. And police in those areas are more likely to have more training to deal with de-escalation and and racial issues, but also more sensitivity to the fact that there are racial differences in in the criminal justice system. Location, I think, is one part. Obviously, racial identity of the police officer is another part. You take an ideal type of a, a conservative white police officer that's works in a small town, he's probably going to react very differently to the story than a counterpart in a city, whether they're black or whether they're another race or or even if they're white, because of the networks in which they're embedded and the kinds of discourse that people are having in those contexts. Yeah. Although I will say as someone who lived in Chicago for six and a half years, (laughs) there were a lot of challenges with policing there and the police force is pretty diverse from a racial perspective. Yes, even within a department, there might be pockets of discourse. <laughs> As I was preparing for this podcast discussion, I came across uh, an article in the journal Social Forces. It was looking at federal court data. It noticed that racial inequality in sentencing dropped significantly over the last decade. It says, in 2009, the average sentencing difference between black and white defendants in federal court was nearly three years By 2018, this difference was less than six months. Among drug offenders over the same period, the black-white gap went from 47 months down to zero. They said, you know, so what's going on here? And they said, well, one of the major causes of that was shifts in prosecutors using mandatory minimums. You know, there's a narrative shift in minimum sentencing and mandatory minimum sentencing laws and rules. How we, how we choose to prosecute also matters for how we police, I, I, I would imagine, as well. But there's still some progress. There's still something changing in, in terms of the criminal justice system. Yeah, a reaction to mandatory minimums is also something that had to take time to develop. After it came out that this was harming certain populations more than others, one of the ways by which we as a voting public come to know about this is through media through technology. And there have been some large changes which have made this kind of information more available to the public at large. Got the rise of social media, obviously. People can see stories about all kinds of issues and read as much depth of the details about those that they want. But you've also had something like smartphones with cameras that have been able to increase surveillance of police during these interactions. I think for a long time, we wanted to believe in white America that things were getting better. And we felt fairly comfortable assuming that based on what we saw after the civil rights movement in the 1960s, to believe that because we discrim- we outlawed discrimination, that things were going to get better eventually as a natural course of things. I think we were comforted by seeing Jackie Robinson break into the major leagues, seeing Dr. Huxtable on our television sets, uh, and seeing those sorts of things made us feel like while whites were still sort of enjoying a comfortable 
position within the social hierarchy that the gap was shrinking when maybe it wasn't. And now this new smartphone technology is revealing, in fact, that things have maybe not changed so much since the 60s as we would have wanted them to. And that increases, I think, activism for changes in policies that have the effect of discriminating or applying justice inequally across uh, social groups like mandatory minimums. Obviously, the discussion around police violence is extremely heated in many ways. I often think of it very similarly to our discussions that we have about mass shootings, which also provoke a lot of anger. How do those conversations, both in terms of the discourse that we're talking about it, but the actual actions themselves, how do they intersect with one another as you see it? What do you see as like the similarities? Well, I think that the narrative universes overlap. The same sort of mediaverse in which police actions are seen to be justified because it's a dangerous job are the same consumers of media and media outlets that reinforce the idea that guns are not the problem with mass shootings. In both scenarios, the group that is disproportionately victimized is the same. It's Black Americans, especially in urban centers. There are a lot of mass shootings uh, in the United States. They occur pretty much daily, and that's not the norm across the world. You know, we don't really have a great definition for mass shooting. There's no standard definition for a mass killing or, or, or mass shooting, rather. There is a, a definition for mass killing that is uh, sort of codified into law as three or more killings in a single incident, but that doesn't specify a weapon. There are other definitions of mass shootings. The Nonprofit Gun Violence Archive uses a a more stringent definition for or more victims who are injured or killed, not including the shooter. And I think that's, it's a much more stringent definition than the, than the one that is codified into law. And even taking that definition, it's more than one per day. We're we, we are a nation with a lot of mass shootings. Why don't we pay attention to all of them? It it depends on who is being victimized. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're we're in in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. I do want to dive deeper into this discussion of the overlap that we see between mass shootings slash mass killings and police violence, in particular because these are things that often do really hit us very viscerally and in many ways are things that we feel very personally while at the same time 
have particular understandings of understanding the world and who's responsible for what and who do we blame when things are not happening. You know, there's often a lot of pointed fingers when these things do happen. And that's part of what makes these conversations so heated and so charged. What have you found often goes wrong in our discourse about these? What do you find the media often tends to potentially overstate or even understate when covering these things? And how might we be a little bit more conscientious as media consumers when we're trying to understand what's going on in these really horrific attacks? There is an impulse to sort of consume stories about these kinds of situations in a way that reinforces your priors, right? There's a a work by a scholar by the name of James Hunter, who famously coined the word culture wars, by the way. In another book, he mentions something called atrocity stories. And atrocity stories are stories that are sort of shocking to the system. And both of these kinds of scenarios are rather shocking to our collective psyche, whether we're talking about police violence or mass shootings that are both sort of, they stand out from the, the regular news of the day. What happens with these stories is they sort of get swept up into politicized discourse representing atrocities that are perceived against a particular political camp. So the media will pick up on these stories and they will filter them through sort of predetermined political narratives and lenses and moral frameworks in order to support a position that might give them an advantage politically to mobilize people to go vote for their position. I guess one question that I have is, where do you see media changing the way people view and talk about those two different things? You know, like, how does the role of the media differ mass shootings and police shootings? So I think certainly the coverage of these kinds of stories on the media does shape how we perceive the events. And it also sort of maybe misleadingly implies how frequently they occur. I think they probably, whether we're talking about mass shootings or police violence, these are very rare instances when we talk about the world of crime. It is the tip of the iceberg. Murders in general account for like 1.4% of all crime, I think. Media does play a role in, in sort of driving fear about crime that is sometimes not exactly warranted. And unfortunately, that can sort of seep into political discourse, especially when we're talking about crime policy. Some people I find when I have discussions about the prevalence of crime in society, some people are surprised to learn that the crime rates in the United States are about half what they were at their peak in the 1990s. That being said, I do think that there is some value to the reporting of these kinds of issues, given the fact that the levels of violent crime and the the levels of, of gun crime and gun violence in the United States is disproportionately much higher than it is in a lot of other nations. You know, the media does have sort of a a double-sided risk here because on the one hand, when you broadcast a story about a mass shooter and you describe the details, how many people are affected and what's the identity of the killer, some of the research has shown that you are actually doing what they want. They want the notoriety. They want the hope. This is mostly true in cases of mass shooting, not necessarily police violence. So there is the risk of giving them the attention that they're looking and therefore inspiring other people to do the same. On the other hand, these kinds of stories are immensely within the public interest, right? Because they do affect public policy. 
if there is going to be change in our gun laws, it will only be able to occur if people know that it's a problem. So that occurs through the reporting of these things. And there is a way to shape those narratives as not what's acceptable, but creating certain thresholds for what's thinkable, I think, in, in, in some cases. Malcolm Gladwell, I know he's not himself a researcher, but rounded up some of the research in a very interesting Yorker article about school shootings and relating that to mob violence and talking about the mob action changing when you started to see like there's the first person that throws the brick who has a certain high threshold. The second person to throw a brick has a slightly lower threshold because they weren't the first person. The third person has a slightly lower threshold because now, gosh, two people have done it. And on and on and on, by the time you're the hundredth person, you have a very low threshold because now you're the guy not throwing the brick. There's an element, I think, in certain forms of violence where that may be the case, where it is presented as it's a thinkable way to commit suicide and also take out those guys that deserve it. Now, there's probably a connection there on on policing in the sense of if there are stories, whether that they circulate in the media or they circulate in back rooms, that you can do certain behavior and get away with it, then that probably lowers the resistance level for engaging in some of those behaviors in policing. But, you know, when you have something like the show and verdict today, ideally that will, that will raise that bar. But also, I was thinking about the ways in which that changes your perception in depending on what community you're in. I personally found stories of police violence less scary because they weren't about me. You know, something that I don't know that I reckon with. I didn't see the Rodney King thing as something that was likely to happen to me. Therefore, it wasn't scary for me. I'm really glad that these, the attention to these cases is actually seeming to have an effect on the way criminal justice is being carried out and, and accountability. If I were black, I would find all, all this constant news to be very, what's the word? It like, you know, trauma is probably an overused word, but it, it, it would be, it would be. Yeah, I think it's an actual word for like trauma that you end up feeling just because it's directed at your community so often. Directed at your community. This in, yeah, that it's like this, this could be you in a very, very real way over and over and over again. I don't know what the media responsibility is there. You know, you have this with mass shooting too. I think there's a media responsibility to report on these things. But how we do it responsibly is tricky. And how we report on police violence and racialized police violence in particular, boy, there seems to be a need to also do some audience care there that I don't know that I've totally reckoned with as editorial director of Christianity Today. Morgan, do you have thoughts on that as media person as well? In general, all of this stuff takes a certain level of judiciousness that I've always been glad to work at CT over because I do feel like we tend to see ourselves as not just people who are going to jump for every news story. And that's part of, I would say, the quote-unquote luxury of being raised in a more magazine type of environment where magazines in general are just not going to cover everything or they're going to do the day or day two or day three story. <laughs> I do know that when I came in, I had much more newspaper instincts of wanting to cover everything. And those have been definitely challenged and refined over the course of time that we're here. One thing I, that I'm grateful for is that doesn't mean that any of us on staff are not paying attention to the news, but it does mean that we're trying to think through how we're going to be able to give people more context as to what is happening. And I think that that context 
without it, right? There is often this tendency where we can lead to people to feel more anxiety over things that may necessarily be how they should actually be feeling during that time because not all the information has come out there and we're not necessarily feeling the same level of pressure to just kind of put something out there while information is still coming in, which I think in many ways just, yeah, leads people to feel even more frightened, right? I think of like news articles, which are understandable, that come out while there's still an active shooter. I think that those are trying to do the right thing, but I'm not sure if they actually end up, you know, helping people understand the situation better rather than just alarming everyone. I know that doesn't exactly answer your question, Ted. I do think, though, that there are ways that we do have to think about trauma. One of the pieces that you shared with all of us last week was about a local Chicago news outlet that was writing about this Adam Toledo story that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode and specifically the body cam footage that had been released of Adam being shot at by this police officer. The outlet did two different things. Block Club Chicago did two different things. They released one story that had the footage and they released one story that described what was in the video but did not have the footage. I do think that is something that I was really grateful that they thought about and that they considered that it was not necessarily in the best interest of their audience to be forced to watch that or even encouraged to, to watch that as I think many of us will click on videos when we see them right there. You know, many of us are on technologies like Twitter and Facebook that often have autoplaying video, <laughs> whether we want to confront someone's death or not on our timeline, we are kind of assaulted by that in many ways. And so I was grateful for this news outlet realizing that they had a choice in how they wanted to present the news and how they wanted to explain it to people and hit people with it and that they took their audience's mental health into account when they were going to be reporting on that. So I think this is really interesting. What Kind of what we're talking about is sort of unintentional effects of what happens when we report on the media. Is it causing any emotional trauma on the communities that are affected? What I thought about was really interesting is the, the story that we heard, I think, last week about the Army lieutenant who was pulled over in Virginia, Caron Nazario. I think it was this case. I might be mistaken, but I remember some discourse between him and the police officer about the police officer saying something to the effect of, oh, you know, the, the, the climate that we're in, right? So the police officer himself in that interaction was had changed the way he approached the situation because of the media climate that has occurred in recent years, because of the narratives, maybe because of his perception of Black Lives Matter. I don't really know. But I will also say that in terms of emotional trauma, for, for example, the Black community is going to experience that kind of trauma with or without the media stories. There is wide acknowledgement of sort of the phenomena things like uh, living while black and driving while black. There was, in fact, there was an article uh, written about 1996 or 1999 by David Harris, published in the Minnesota Law Review uh, about driving while black. And what was really interesting to me, first of all, the statistics he provided about the overrepresentation of, of black drivers being pulled over and searched disproportionately, which had two effects. Number one, of course, people who are getting pulled over more often are going to be more likely to be found to have contraband, right? So there was going to be more drugs, more, more guns found on drivers if you search them more often, even without cause, based on the pretext of their skin color, right? So that's one effect. But the sort of the more dangerous 
to our social fabric, the effect that's more dangerous for our social fabric is the experience of trauma by the person being pulled over, if especially if they're innocent, because that tells them something about their position in society with, with relationship to police and law enforcement, and not just the person being pulled over unjustifiably, but also the people in their household, the people in their family, the people in their church. These stories disseminate throughout a community. So I can remember distinctly when I lived in Cincinnati in 2001, 2000, 2001, a story that looked a heck of a lot like Adam Toledo's story, a young man by the name of Timothy Thomas. He was 19 years old, I want to say, who had been pursued by police through a dark alley. In fact, in this case, he was not carrying a gun, but he was holding up his pants. And when he turned around, the police interpreted that as an act of reaching for a gun because he was pulling up his pants. He was shot by the police officer in a dark alley. You know, this is before the the time of smartphones. That was not an incident that was captured on camera. That was not an incident that maybe I'm wrong. I was living in Cincinnati at the time, so it was reported locally. I don't know about nationally. It was the tip of an iceberg. It was sort of the the straw that broke the camel's back. People poured into the streets. No justice, no peace. This is a trauma that is experienced in the community, whether it is being reported in the news or not. And where I think it does help is that, like I mentioned earlier, it sort of opens the eyes of everybody else that's living in society comfortably (laughs) who think that the world is becoming a better place when in reality, these stories do help to show that maybe it's not. There's a slight eschatological question, or if not eschatological question, at least a trajectory question of, you know, is the world becoming a better place or not? So like how we process this verdict today, I think is interesting as we're taping, still seeing folks on Twitter celebrating, seeing some of the reaction being a rejoicing that justice is done, rejoicing that the guilty are, are punished rejoicing to quote Colossians, you know, that the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he is he has done. That there is an element where we jump to kind of our view of what God is doing in the world and saying, yeah, we look forward to this universe in which God is going to make all things right and in which all of our sins will be forgiven. And it is interesting to see all of the um verses in uh scripture in which part of that vision is that there is an element in which in which guilty are punished, in which the people who were tasked with keeping the law, the people who were tasked with ruling well, the people who were tasked with being arbiters of God's justice and who uh, conducted injustice, where God holds them to account and says, you did the wrong thing. And now like Pharaoh, uh, your kingdom will be turned upside down and you will face uh, great sorrow. And that's part of the hope for the Christian. Whether we see today's verdict as that part of, a sign of the coming kingdom, whether we see it as growing evidence of God working or whether we see the increasing incident of police violence as, as an indication of how terrible things are getting and, and that God is going to have to come and radically put those things to right. People are certainly in relief and to a large degree seeing this as a moment for rejoicing and rejo- seeing at least to some degree that there may be at least an echoing of God's work in the world, if not this being an act of God's work in the world. But yeah, tell me, tell me about your thoughts. What this verdict shows is that there is a path towards the world becoming a better place and it can include Christians involved in struggle. 
I think what religion in general and what Christianity specifically provides to public discourse, whether we're talking about least minority violence or we're talking about mass shootings or gun violence in general or suicide, is a moral imperative to be part of that struggle to make the world a better place. Now, that moral imperative can be good or bad, of course. You know, people are capable of doing great harm if they believe that what they are doing is good and right. But when it comes to these issues, Christian discourse in the United States today does have, you know, a lot of challenges, but also opportunities. There are certain traditions, for example, that have rich resources from which to draw for advocating for nonviolent change, right? Obviously, Martin Luther King Jr. comes immediately to mind here, as he should. If you think racial progress is a challenge today, think about what it was like in the Jim Crow South, right? And the black church was instrumental in affecting that change. You know, there were so many resources available through the church. You had leaders like like MLK, like Ralph Abernathy, like Jesse Jackson, like Joseph Lowry, like C.T. Vivian. All of these civil rights leaders came from the ministry and from the black church specifically. And involvement in the black church has historically been very strong, especially in the South. So you have this tightly knit set of networks of believers who can spread information very quickly. That means they can mobilize efficiently for political activity, for demonstration, for protest, for getting to the polls to vote, whatever it might be. They can be involved in that struggle for change. I personally think we need to be paying attention to what these folks are saying in Christian discourse today. I'll say that a little shout out. I've been particularly impressed by the work of Reverend William Barber in recent years. He's really been quite active in trying to sort of reclaim a sense of dignity for the downtrodden. And that's across racial lines too, I think. But to our main point here, he's also sort of really definitely framed gun violence, police minority violence as forms of oppression, as part of an intertwining system in which African-Americans especially continue to face unequal justice in the world today. So I might just suggest leaning into his messaging a little bit more. I think he's one to follow. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bob, for our discussion today. I really appreciate you being willing to dive into all of these complicated discussions with us and topics with us. As you could tell, there's a lot of grappling with things in real time, and I appreciate your willingness to do that with us. For people who have feedback for us, you can send us an email. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We're also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Slow to Speak, and it is where we hear from so many of you listeners. Last week on the podcast, we had Mark Yarhouse on, and we were talking about transgenderism. So that is the context for the first letters that we will be reading. I'm going to read one from Elizabeth Anderson. She wrote, I really appreciated your episode about gender dysphoria. I thought it was so thoughtful and nuanced and addressed the issues associated with both mainstream cultural slash political reactions. As a public school teacher in Western Washington state, I struggle with the ways in which public policy shapes gender conversations in schools with children, often focused on almost, quote, advertising transgender identities. Likewise, I dislike the knee-jerk reaction of my conservative fellow churchgoers who automatically oppose a politician who favors gender-inclusive policies, such as transgender people serving in the military or being protected in their employment, which are simply giving all people the ability to have a good quality of life. Your podcast presents a gentle and caring middle ground. Thank you, Elizabeth. And here's a letter from Jenna in Omaha. 
I really appreciated your guest this week. I felt it was really rational and thoughtful approach to this topic. Uh, one of my family members is a counselor who works with children and families. And because of the demographic my family member works with, we've had discussions about this topic as it relates to our Christian faith. We've been very frustrated with our experience with many other Christians at church who reject all transgender issues as inherently wrong with no desire to consider individual situations or love and care for individuals in any way. I really appreciate a discussion that asks the church to get back to loving the individual well instead of off-the-cuff emotional reactions. I hope someday the church will be known as a body that loves people instead of a body that is against so many cultural issues with no regard to the individual. Thank you, Jenna. There were a number of tweets that were fairly critical of the of the podcast episode. And it was interesting, you know, I was kind of thinking, including a number of people that I think took Yarhouse as being kind of support, being fairly supportive of gender change in youth. In fact, one tweet said, disappointed I'm not surprised to see how open Yarhouse is to sex change in, in minors. I'm like, wait, <laughs> I was at that podcast and I do not remember him saying that and went back and re-listened. I'm like, he did not say that he wanted youth to do sex changes. But it is interesting when you talk to folks who are, you know, clinical psychologists, they come at these questions uh, differently. These letter, letter readers point out there's very little of the kind of culture war, kind of public stance, what should, you know, quote unquote, the church say publicly about these issues. He was definitely coming at this from very much a, what should you, Christian Christian friend listening to this podcast, do on these issues? And I, th- you know, I thought his his answer on, well, how close are you to the person that you're talking about? You know, like this is something that you want to have a pre-existing relationship with somebody when they tell you, I'd like you to, you know, call me, call me by a different name now. That does not seem like biblical compromise to me. That seems like wisdom. We are definitely concerned about transgenderism here. And, you know, we did have some folks say, you know, hey, there's a lot of cultural pressure on transgender right now. And one of my coworkers here said, you know, transgenderism is one of those topics where nuance is frequently understood as betrayal. And that is true on the right, and that is true on the left. I appreciated the way in which he refused to engage in some of the polemics and offered advice. You know, there's concerns about the church becoming too therapeutic. Yeah, yeah, let me say, yeah, there's concerns about the church being too therapeutic. But yeah, I mean, you know, that's, uh, if you're going to get a psychologist on, that's where you're going to get, man. I thought the podcast did something that I would love to just honestly do in more podcasts, which is push us away from almost running to laws and court systems, as I think is a tendency for many of us, as a way to kind of like avoid having much harder conversations about things. And that there's this idea that if, you know, we can legislate what we believe to be true yeah, that will save us from this like bad thing that's going to happen. And of course, in many ways, as we've seen time and time again, legislation is guaranteed to do one thing, and that is make people angrier and more embittered towards each other. And, you know, may or may not actually address the situation that is at wrong, which is often a broken relationship. So I'm not anti-legislation in every facet of society, obviously. And I believe that there's a lot to be said for what government can do and to support But in this particular one, I think that it was almost an implicit sense of just saying like, you know, what is it that makes us want to go after legislation? And the fact that Mark did not really want to talk about legislation in many ways, I don't see it all (laughs) as a dodge. I mean, he literally works with this community very closely, right? 
a sense of asking us to reevaluate our own relationship with the legal system and how we wanted to solve our problems that are challenging and vexing for us. All right, Ted, we have a couple more letters from people who wanted to talk again about an episode we did a couple weeks ago about churches being there for people who are vaccinated and not vaccinated. So do you want to read the first letter? I would be happy to. Morgan and team, first of all, thanks as ever for another thoughtful podcast. I've been listening to the pod for about a year and consistently enjoy the content and learn something new. I was struck by a question you asked the expert during the Vaxxed Unvaxxed show. You asked something along the lines of, is it time for pastors to start promoting the vaccine among their congregants? And Mr. Kim answered with some qualifications, mostly in the negative. It struck me as a little strange. Pastors and churches of color have long been called on to play a public health role in their community, and it seems odd that at this time we're not calling on white pastors to fill the same role in their congregations. If it's true that 50% of white evangelicals elect not to be vaccinated, that's an alarming number, and trusted pastors can do a lot to close that gap, as black and Latino pastors and community leaders have long done. If we expect this of leaders in minority churches, we need to be willing to do the same. Thanks again, Sam. I would say to that, you know, Sam, I, I think that that's a good a good perspective, but I would also say that I think that the role that the black pastor is in the black church uh, and the community function that they serve in some ways is very enviable. But I do think that in a lot of the churches, majority white churches, there is a little bit of a different tradition about the role that those pastors, especially in their pulpits, serve. And a lot of, I think, some of the discipleship functions, if a pastor is going to go in front of the pulpit and offer health advice as a matter of course, then I think that probably, you know, this might be (laughs) certainly something to consider. If a pastor is getting up in front talking about ways to balance your budget, various and sundry other things that are maybe, you know, extra, extra biblical advice type sermons, I don't love those sermons myself consider that. But I do know of a lot of pastors who are like, I have, I'm doing something extremely specific in my pulpit. I fence it pretty strong against being uh, overly uh, engaged in issues of the day. And I'll do that on occasion, but I don't want to necessarily have my pulpit be a place where I'm doing God's take on the news. I appreciate that perspective as well. There's a lot of different ecclesiologies out there and a lot of different views of what the pulpit is for. But I appreciate your perspective, Sam, that if we're, we shouldn't say it's just black pastors jobs, but I do think there's, there's cultural reasons why black pastors may be more likely to to do that or may be more likely to be engaged by public health officials. Morgan thoughts? Yeah. Well, I think that that was one thing that I would, I saw this word when you were reading this letter and it said, trusted pastors can do a lot to close the gap. And that's an area that I would actually really like to there to be polling data on with regards to how much people trust their pastors. I guess you can go look at Gallup. But I hear, at least when I read articles that we publish, that there's often a growing sense of frustration among pastors, particularly those that lead predominantly white evangelical congregations about a lack of trust there or a sense that they are not able to actually call out behavior or address different things that they see as discipleship gaps in their congregation and that increasingly they're just being tuned out, especially when it comes to the media. I know that's like a a much bigger discussion for another day. I, I am actually really curious within white evangelical communities how much the pastor's word, especially outside of strictly quote unquote spiritual matters, 
how willing people are to kind of like take their pastor's words and to trust them for things outside of that versus just tuning them out and listening to other news sources or information sources outside of that. All right. We have our last letter is from Mary Edwards. She said, thank you for your quick to listen podcast. I listen often to help get a Christian perspective on current issues. I was perplexed, however, by the episode that featured Jay Kim. He stated with no real pushback that people listening to a pastor through technology can receive information, but not transformation. This seemed to be based on anecdotal information about the congregants of his church who he somehow determined were being spiritually transformed only when they attended church with a live pastor, while those watching a video sermon were not. I haven't read his book, and I don't know how he reached this conclusion, but it doesn't seem reasonable. Soul transformation comes through the scriptures and through the Holy Spirit. It is spiritual, not tied to a certain place. There are many good reasons for churches to gather, fellowship, worship, witness, but proximity to a preacher doesn't seem to be a good one to me unless you would be too distracted in another setting. But then people have been losing focus even in church gatherings since the time of Eutychus, at least. Scripture itself was written down and read by others in other locations. For hundreds of years, people have been transformed with the aid of books. In the last century, untold numbers of people have been reached throughout the world by radio and then television outreach. In the past 20 years, the gospel has been accessible to billions of people through internet technology. I have read comments by thousands of people telling how a book or other not-in-person teaching has helped them see a scripture more clearly. It is unfathomable to me that the Holy Spirit has not been transforming lives through this media. My own spiritual transformation has come far more from books than in-person sermons throughout my life. These days, I often listen to sermons and teachings from Tim Keller and Beth Moore, and I know they are guiding me from one degree of glory to another, even though the speakers are not physically present. I have been attending my church online for the past year and find as much or more transformation than when present in person. The Spirit will work in whatever and however the Word of God is preached to a receptive heart. From Mary Edwards. Mary, what a great letter. <laughs> I appreciate the much broader context that you zoomed out in when you were you know, offering your rebuttal here. And I think that there's a lot of food for thought here. When I was reading your letter, one of the things that made me think about is I realized that Jay was talking in a very narrow way about preaching and about what the relationship between in-person preaching is and how one's hearing it. And since Ted has read Jay's book, I'd be interested, Ted, when and you expanding on this more. But I personally feel like church in many ways is about being present with other people, specifically with people who you may not have much in common with and declaring yourself to have something in common with them. And I believe that those people are far, it's far easier to acknowledge them and for them to have to acknowledge you when you are there in person with them. And ideally you're not just in person with them and coming and going that we know that's often the case, but you are actually interacting with them or to use Christianese, doing life with them and so forth. And that is the part that seems so challenging to me when you're in many ways, asynchronistically engaging with sermons or other types of teaching that may be extremely thought-provoking, but may not necessarily have the larger community context tied to it. Ted, you read Jay's book. What are your thoughts? I have been definitely transformed in my thinking through sermons that I have heard on podcasts. I actually do my daily devotion through a podcast uh, that is the, a morning prayer podcast. And I have a, an evening Compline podcast. I love them. And they are significantly transformative for me. There is a big difference, I think, between me listening. I've been listening to uh, old John Stott sermons lately. They are great. They're available online. But there's a big difference between John, me listening to a sermon that John Stott preached 
to his congregation 20 years ago and me listening to to my pastor talk to my congregation at a specific moment in a specific time to specific people. And I know that when I work on my sermon, I definitely am thinking of specific people in the pews. I know that probably megachurch pastors aren't able, you know, I have a small church perspective on these things. But I do think that embodied is important, and I think that a specific congregation is important. That's not to say we work at Christianity Day, man. We, you, you'd better be able to be transformed by by media. Otherwise, what the heck are we doing our jobs for? We're doing a podcast that we hope is somewhat transformative. But I do think that church life, congregational life, the congregational sermon really is something special. And I think that that's where, what Jay was getting at. He's like, yeah, it's not what I say and it's not what you, it, it's not what you hear. It's kind of like what the Spirit does in the in-between in having something specific move to your heart. Hopefully the Spirit's doing that in other ways too. But I think God's main way of working is through that local church and being formed by your local church. And I really encourage you. I, yeah, please do keep listening to Tim Keller sermons. They're great, but don't substitute it out. That Maybe that like sums up how we feel. Like, Yes, and in many ways, but don't, like you said, don't substitute it. Yep. And don't expect that your local church pastor is going to preach as awesomely as, as Tim Keller. And these, like, you know, every pastor's probably been told, like, oh, you know, I like Tim Keller's sermons better. But that's not the point. The point is not that every pastor should, like, try to be a better preacher than, than uh, Tim Keller or some other great, great preacher of the day. The point is that that pastor is ideally pastoring you. He has something specific to say, and that the Spirit is taking those words. That's what we believe. We believe that God's main way of working is through the local church. So that's what we're passionate about at CT. And we hope you're supplementing it through good other podcasts. Thank you for sending in such thoughtful responses to the stuff that we are making. We invite you to continue to do that. Send us an email, podcast with an S at ChristianityToday.com. All right. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. And it's where everyone has a chance to share something that has recently brought them joy. Ted, over to you. I was listening to a podcast recently called You're Dead to Me. It is a BBC Radio 4, I believe, podcast. There's a history podcast where they take a topic and they pair, like, a, there's a host and then there's, a, like, usually a comedian of some kind and then there's a historian. And so the idea is that the comedian is there kind of to riff and tell jokes, but also to kind of <laughs> learn the topic a little bit. So there's a little bit of a quiz show at the end about did they, were they listening to make jokes or did they actually listen and learn some stuff about the topic? Fun little podcast. The episode I listened to last week was on Sacagawea, which as they were talking about it, I'm like, I have a board game that is so fun that I have not played in so long. And it's called Lewis and Clark, The Expedition. So on on Saturday, my son and I busted out Lewis and Clark, The Expedition. Super fun board game. It's almost a racing game. It is both historically informative and also extremely historically inaccurate because each player is their own core of discovery and you each are kind of racing your core of discovery across the North America to try to get to the Pacific Ocean first. Not exactly how Lewis and Clark did it. They didn't break up and race, but that... <laughs> <laughs> That's how the game works anyway. But you have these uh, 84 character cards that you can pull from, adding to uh, people uh, that you are going across America with, all people who were actually part of the story of Lewis and Clark's and Sacagawea's journey across the, the continent. 
Each of those cards has both kind of a, an action that you can take, or you could use the card to kind of power the action like once, twice, or three times. Very fun kind of, you know, having to manage your card powers, decide what you want to play when, ending up saying like, oh, I'm going to, you know, have a real high cost here because I played my cards wrong three or four turns ago. If you're at all interested in board games that incorporate a lot of different elements like racing and hand management, worker placement, all those kinds of things, Lewis and Clark, the Expedition. Fun game. I enjoyed it with my son. Could kind of like imagine that I was teaching him some history too. So, you know, maybe some dad points there. But anyway, yeah. You can find me on social media at Ted Olson, T-E-D-O-L-S-E-N. All right. Well, I will share one. I feel like this is less of a precious moment and just like things that people would want to know about Hawaii. I did a hike on Sunday. Cocoa Head is, for people who are not familiar with, essentially it is a old train track that goes directly up a hill. And now there's no more train and it is just essentially a track kind of modified into stairs. I did it once about six years ago. And then I did it on Sunday and I did not get into the cult of Cocoa Head, which I've noticed many people are in. I met some people at the bottom of it. One person was about to do it their third time. The person was going to do it their fifth time, like consecutively. And you have people who love to run up it, run down it, you know, carry weights while they're doing it at the same time. Don't feel any of those things after doing it, but it was fun to do it again, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think we did it in like 30 minutes and there are other people who have done it in like 15. So there you go. If people are interested in doing a very direct hike, I guess I would say, because again, it just goes straight up the hill. That is Cocoa Head for you. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, over to you, Bob. Well, my precious moment is still precious to me, but sounds much less adventurous now in comparison to yours. (laughs) (laughs) But it involves my six-year-old son who has recently uh, started piano lessons which was way younger than I had ever even known what a musical note is. So I'm very proud of him. And recently, last week, he had his first sort of, I don't know, exam, I guess you could call it, uh, with his private teacher, who gave him passing marks for a song that we worked on for about an hour and a half uh, together. So really proud of my son for sticking with it. Yeah, no kidding. How are your ears? <laughs> you enjoying the music? <laughs> Actually, surprisingly, yes. I mean, it's a lovely instrument, so uh, no complaints here. Wonderful. Okay, remind people where they can find you outside of the show. You can find me on Twitter at Bob O. Thompson, B-O-B, capital O, capital T-H-O-M-S-O-N. And I know that's not really my last or middle initial, but it works. All right. Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. Send us an email. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We're sure there's a lot for you to respond in here. And we're interested in hearing your thoughts and opinions from it. So podcast with an S at christianitytoday.com. The show is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps. And the transcript is done by Yvonne Sue and Bunmi Ashola. If you like what you've heard, we invite you to go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show there. Quick to Listen is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks and see you next week.